So I had the entire Lehman organization. I was left with $650 billion in assets and no people. So I had to figure out how to bring in a team to do it. That's, that was an eye-opener because I learned how important it is to the idea of trust. Welcome to this week's HPS cast. I am your host, Colbert Cannon, and let me tell you a little bit about HPS and what you're listening to today. HPS is a global investment firm. We manage over $60 billion in assets for a broad range of institutional investors. That capital is invested across private credit and public credit strategies. I sit in the private credit side of the house, and I spend time finding opportunities to deploy our capital into a range of interesting situations, mergers and acquisitions, refinancings, etc. The central premise of our show is simple. We are entrusted as stewards of capital by our investors, and we entrust that capital to management teams to help drive value creation. This podcast is intended to talk to key relationships of HPS about how they got to where they are today and how those experiences help them drive value creation on a day-to-day basis for themselves and for their stakeholders. This podcast will introduce those business leaders to you, our listeners, and it is our hope that through those interviews, you will get a little bit of a better sense of who we, HPS, are through the lens of our key constituents internally and externally. Our guest today is a leader in every sense of the word. He was raised in one of my favorite cities, New Orleans, and ended up attending the University of Michigan for both undergrad and business school. After college, he worked on Wall Street and at then Citibank, where among other roles, he ended up in a group focused on working out problem loans. He later partnered with Tony Alvarez to launch their eponymous restructuring advisory firm in 1983. Alvarez and Marcel grew from a simple advisory business to a global consulting firm with a complete range of product offerings, with over 4,000 employees across 24 countries today. During those decades of growth, our guest has had a front row seat to history as he was brought in to administer the largest bankruptcy in history, serving as the CEO of Lehman Brothers in the wake of the global financial crisis. He's a man I respect greatly for his entrepreneurship, his strategic vision, and his dedication to delivering unbiased advice and successful outcomes on behalf of clients across the wide breadth of his business. So without any further ado, here's my interview with Brian Marsal, CEO of Alvarez and Marsal, in his office on Madison Avenue in Manhattan. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Let's start from the beginning. You were a kid growing up in New Orleans. What drew you to the University of Michigan for college? My father was transferred. I didn't have any, any options. At 14, my dad said, you're coming with me. I had actually planned on uh, attending uh, Jesuit High School in New Orleans and playing football at LSU. And he says, no, that's not going to happen. You're going to come with me and your sisters and your mom. We're going to Ford Motor Company transferred him to, uh, to Dearborn, Michigan to help form this company called Ford Motor Credit. And so that was how my family came to live in Michigan. And from there, I went to high school in, in Bloomfield Hills, attended University of Michigan undergraduate, and uh, couldn't get a job after the undergraduate. It was a terrible time for a job, so I decided to stay, and I got my MBA. <laughs> Before we leave your college days, you ended up playing football in Michigan. I tried to. Yeah? How'd that go? <laughs> Not very well, but I, I played uh, a brief period of time freshman year. Got it. And then you got injured, if I remember correctly. Yes. Is that right? Yes. You were a football player as a child. You enjoyed it, obviously. What lessons do you learn from that experience? Well, you learn lessons of team. I think how, how important uh, it's not just the individual. It's it's the entire team. I mean, that's one of the keys to Lehman Brothers. When I got in there, I never appreciated the, the, the importance of team until I had to have 34 managing directors report to me in the Lehman liquidation and how important it was to actually trust people and to believe in people and to encourage the best out of people. What position did you play? I was an outside linebacker tackle. 
And and talk to me about the Brian Marcel football game. What was your game like as a linebacker? I was quick, but not fast. <laughs> <laughs> a good first step, I'm sure. Okay. So you went straight to business school after college. What was the thought process of business school versus other options? Well, I went to law school for a year at the same time. Oh, was that right? I, I attended yeah. a joint program of law and of, of business. And uh, I quickly determined that I did not want uh, to go down the, the, the legal route. Why was that? Uh, well, I thought that the process by which, uh, in terms of dealing with a problem was very constructive, but I thought that the endless hours of debate over issues was not my cup of tea. And uh, so what I decided was when I got into policy control at business school, this was definitely something more that I wanted to do. And I quickly concluded I wanted to figure out a way to solve problems. You graduate business school and you end up coming to Citibank, I guess, Mm -hmm. then uh, here on Wall Street. How did you think about that opportunity versus other opportunities in front of you? Well, the reason I came to Citibank was my my banking professor, Professor Geis, who's passed away now. He told me, he said, you know, among your options, I could have gone to work at the B of A out in California. I could have gone to work in Chicago for various banks there. could have stayed in Detroit. But he told me, New York, they'll eat you alive there, those Ivy League guys. So I said, they'll eat me alive. I said, that's where I want to go then. Challenge accepted. I, I want to go there and I want to see what kind of challenge. I, if that's really true, and I, and I came to Citibank and I had a lot of great people there, but they certainly were no better than me. What group did you go into when you first joined? Corporate lending. Okay. National lending. And then you ended up going into workouts, is that right? No, what I did was I made a bad loan. Okay. I made a bad Sometimes loan. Sometimes people end up in workouts accidentally. <laughs> <laughs> I made a bad loan and, and I, I joined Citibank in 75. I made a bad loan and the chairman of the bank was Walter Riston. And what he believed at the time was that banking was going to be changing. And in the old days, you just put your most irascible people into the workout team to go collect. But he believed in the future, there was going to be massive loan syndications and the workout was going to take on, on a very different uh, complexion. And it was going to be the agent bank was going to be responsible for leading that workout, leading that syndicate, and, and dealing with those problems. Ariston had actually just come off of the, the old WT grant, which was one of the early uh, experiences he had where there was a large syndication be, that, that, was, that was put together. And he saw how that was mismanaged by the wrong kind of people. So he decided that he wanted to put some of the new MBAs into this workout program. And I was one of those that were selected to go into institutional recovery management, which I thought was the end of the world. And uh, I quickly found out that uh, I absolutely absolutely loved it. I loved the problem solving, loved the responsibility that it gave me. And uh, I thrived in that environment. So that's interesting. So in the old days, if it's a bilateral agreement between a bank and a company, it's one-to-one, you can negotiate it, you get to the right answer. Your point is in a world in which a bank loan is held by multiple parties, there's a whole different exercise of convincing people to actually do the right thing. Much more complex process and a much different skill set was needed. The old days, it was simply pay or die. Yeah. In today's market, the market at the time that Riston was looking at it, two things had happened. One, you had syndicated loans, but you also had a bankruptcy law change where you could now reorganize. And in order to reorganize or have a plan of reorganization, you needed at least 51% of the creditors to go along with it. And you needed to come up with a reorganization plan, which was no stone unturned. Mm-hmm. In other words, you had to look at cost reduction, working capital improvement, you had to prove core assets. That you'd explored yeah, every option. Yeah. Have I done everything possible? Yeah. That was what the creditors wanted to know. And thus, show me my recovery under plan B. And uh, 
that was what he recognized was he needed a different kind of a workout department, which he was right about. He was pretty pressing. It's ahead of the curve. Yeah. So anyway, I got stuck in this unit, I thought, and then I figured out that this was kind of the leading edge of what was happening in the marketplace in the years to come. So after several years at Citigroup, you move on to Norton Simon. What, Mm -hmm. What was Norton Simon at the time? Norton Simon was a a large consumer products conglomerate, just a bunch of companies that had very little in common other than the fact that they were serving the consumer. There was not much of a strategy at that time. It was just a, a large, a large consumer products conglomerate. Tony Alvarez, who was my partner in life, he was he took a job really as the CFO of the company. He then recruited me and he said, this is a really messed up situation, lots of working capital problems, lots of cost reduction opportunities. And oh, by the way, I think there's a chance here that we could do some of the things that we've always talked about. So after much, much thought, I joined him in 82 and uh, we, I, I got into one of the most interesting situations of my life because I went from being an, from a banker into actually being, a, if you would, a financial controller, but an operational controller. And uh, I loved it. I loved it. And we attempted uh, in 83 to take, we hired a guy who... Uh, uh, one of the brightest guys on the street by the name of Michael Milken. And uh, we attempted a leverage buyout to take the company private. And I was a very minor piece in this puzzle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're part of the management team, but I was mi- a minor part of the management team. Uh, but I saw it all unfold. And uh, unfortunately, Milken d- did not have his network that he later had and was outbid by Ira Harris at uh, Solomon Brothers. You lose out to Ira Harris. Ira Harris financed uh, Esmark, if you remember the, I do. Yeah. the Swift Butterball Turkey people, yeah. Playtex Living Bra. Yeah. They, they outbid us and they acquired Norton Simon. They, they just made tons of money on the, on the transaction. But meanwhile, Tony and I went on the unemployment line for a what, about six months. And so we went from flying around in a Falcon 50 to the New York subway in 24 hours when <laughs> we lost. So, had you known Tony before you got to Norton Simon? How did yeah, you guys first he, he meet? Was my, uh, he was my first choice whenever I had a, needed uh, an operational slash financial consultant. Got it. He was then at Cooper's, He's Cooper's, Cooper's Library. That was a unit yeah. that he, he worked in. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So, you guys had known each other. You worked together then. Yep. So, then you make this decision to build Alvarez and Marcel. When you first decided to partner together and build this, what was the market niche you saw? What did you want to do? Well, we saw there was an opportunity in the marketplace. You had, with the new bankruptcy law, you had to, you had to go through when you did a plan for your organization the no stone unturned, and you had to go and sell this concept to the creditors. We had developed both of us um, a lot of credibility with the with the financial community at that time. So the idea was, why can't we leverage off of that financial you know reputation that we had developed? And now we could take it a step further. We could say from an operational perspective, we've spent the last two years doing exactly this. So uh, we brought it to the marketplace. And uh, from there, the rest is history. We started with uh, our secretary from Norton Simon. Uh, Just the three of you when you started. The three of us. We started with three of us in the business. Where were your offices when you first started? Arthur Young. Former one of the big eight accounting firms, Arthur Young provided us with an office thinking that we would throw off some business to them. And so they gave us a little corner office and we, we, we worked there and uh, 
you know, two years later, we got out of those offices and we're over 4,000 today. Let's talk about that evolution for a second. You started in a bankruptcy advisory business and consulting to stressed and distressed companies. That is still a very important piece of Alvarez Marcel today. But over time, you've expanded capabilities, you've expanded geographies in a very thoughtful and methodical way over a multi-year period. How did you prioritize other businesses? How did you think about how to expand your mandate in a way that made sense? We recognized that one of the shortcomings of, of almost all of our clients was that a client has to reinvent yourself. In, in the old days, it was every seven to 10 years. And that's why a CEO is probably only good for a seven to 10 year run, because the CEO has to be reinventing him or herself. Today, I think the reinvention is more like every three to five years. Because of the, the speeding Pace of up change of, is so much faster of, of the internet, the technology, it is much faster. So one of the things we recognize is that whatever we were doing at the time we were dealing with the banking industry in the area of distressed, that's not really where it's the actions any longer. The action today is with the hedge funds, is with the you know uh, secondary market purchaser of bank paper, so that 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 market has changed dramatically. So we had to change with it. I think that the way in which we prioritize in terms of our value creation, we, we decided that in the area of distress, what we needed to become, we needed to have a competitive advantage. And our competitive advantage, which was the competitive advantage over the accounting firms and over many of the investment banks, was that we approached it with, first and foremost, providing leadership to the project, strong leadership. We didn't run from the liability. An accounting firm would tend to run from a liability as a getting responsibility such as the president or the CFO. We would embrace that. And that was very attractive to our clients. Our clients wanted us to be a leader, wanted us to take responsibility for it. They also recognized that time is of the essence. And one of the problems with people with liability concerns is that you don't want to make a decision until you have vast amounts of facts or information. You can't do that in a workout. Sometimes you don't have time for that. You don't have time for it. So yeah. you're going to have to make decisions on it. And last but not least, we didn't care about getting hired again by that company. So we weren't placating. We weren't schmoozing up to the company. We got a job to do. Let's get at it. That was very attractive to our client base, which were creditors. So then we said to ourselves, if that's attractive to clients, such as creditors, where else could we apply that same skill set? That skill set being leadership, operational bent, time is of the essence, an aggressive operating approach. We looked at the equity sponsors. The equity sponsor was very similar. Private equity firms. Private equity sponsors yep. were very similar to the creditors in that they wanted the same thing. They wanted on the due diligence side to know, can I afford to go a half a turn more? What's the working capital look like? What's the opportunity on GNA? What's the opportunity on my cost of goods? Those same questions, time was of the essence in order to win the bid. And didn't want to spend a lot of money on getting to it. So that was a, can't get all the facts, but give me partial look at the facts and give me your conclusions and don't be afraid to give them to me. That became very attractive. So today, our largest business is actually in private equity, due diligence and performance improvement work. That's larger than our distressed business. Then the third business that we got into, which was the corporate side, most corporates wouldn't touch us because they wanted McKinsey. They wanted BCG. They wanted the name players. They wanted the pedigree. What is an Alvarez and Marcel? Is that a soft drink? Is that a, is <laughs> that a candy bar? What is that? And so we couldn't really penetrate the boardrooms and those CEOs. They didn't want to know if the Blues Brothers, just keep them away from me. I don't, I don't even want them using the elevator in the front of the building. Go to the back of the building and use the elevator. So we said, well, how is that changing? Well, that started changing when the distressed investors came on the scene. 
What would happen is a distressed investor would come on the scene. Distressed investor would then ask, uh, I want two seats on the board. CEO CEO and the board would say, no, we're not going to give you seats on the board. Then the CEO would meet with the board and the board would say, we're going to back you this time, but you've got between now and the next board meeting to address these concerns that this investor has. So suddenly the board and the CEO was in the same position as the distressed creditor and as the equity sponsor. Time was of the essence. Get to the problem. Get to the root cause. Is it a corporate carve-out I need here? Is it a working capital or an SGNA problem I have? How come I'm 2% higher like Target was? Target's GNA was 2% higher than the industry average. What are you doing about it? So then we attack that problem. When you look at those, it became clear to us that we can now penetrate the boardroom in terms of the corporate activists, not working for the activists, but working for the company who has to now address the activists' concerns. No, it makes sense. So, so that became those three businesses, distressed, private equity, and uh, performance improvement in corporates became 80% of our business. So of the close to $2 billion that, we do, that we'll do this year, 80% of that is in those three businesses. You talked about um, the interim management roles and how you would put people into senior leadership roles in order to be able to, as you say, run towards liability and sort of embrace the sort of the key decision making roles. There's been a couple interesting moments, you know, for you and your firm over the decades that I wanted to touch on. Let me then set the stage a bit. It's September of 2008. Bear Stearns has failed in July. JP Morgan takes it over. The markets are in turmoil. Financial world's imploding. You get a call that Lehman's going to file for bankruptcy. Where were you when you got that call? Well, let me let me go back because not only was Bear Stearns had Bear Stearns occurred in in, in the in, in the spring, but in the summer Fannie Freddie were basically and you know a safety net was thrown under Fannie Freddie that caused tremendous amount of indigestion in Washington, which was really as you'll see as it played out was the reason for the freefall bankruptcy in my in my humble view as to what happened in the uh, the bankruptcy of, of Lehman Brothers on uh, when it was it December I mean September seventeenth eighteenth yep. in, in any event what happened was. That Sunday, I'm sitting in the grill room of my golf club, and a guy comes up to me, and he says, what do you think about those bonds? I had no idea about anything having to do with Lehman, and I said, I think they're going to be pretty good because nobody would be so stupid with a derivative book, the size of the derivative book they must have, and all the contracts that they have to let this thing file. Of course, they're going to do what they did at Bear Stearns, and they, they have to be meeting downtown working on what they're going to do with Bear, like they did with J.P. Morgan on Bear Stearns. And the very next that, – that night, I get a call at 1030 at night in the middle of a football game that I'm watching on TV. And the, the board has been trying to call me for the last couple of hours and finally they get through And because um, my wife – they, they called a partner of mine and he got on the phone with my wife and she interrupted me in the middle of that meeting. And they said, would you like to – we'd like you to take over the company tomorrow morning. So I asked a few questions. I said, how much cash do you have? They said, it's all been swept by J.P. Morgan and Citibank. I said, well, how much planning has gone into this? And they said, this is the first call. And I said, how much time do I have? And we're going to file before the market opens on Monday morning in London. So all were bad answers, but I took the job anyway. 
So for people less conversant with bankruptcy, you take that job. What does that mean? So you step into that role. What did you and Alvarez and Marcel have to do to sort out the Lehman situation? The first two or three days, they kind of put me in a in a room or in a, in a conference room where I could sort of get up to speed. What I didn't realize was that they were actually trying to sell Lehman Brothers to Barclays at the time, and they didn't want anybody to interfere because they were more concerned, not about the creditors, but concerned about the job preservation and all. And so the first two days, I didn't do much of anything. And then I uh, I realized that what they were selling was they were leaving me with all the assets and all the people had gone to Barclays. So I had the entire Lehman organization. I was left with $650 billion in assets and no people. So I had to figure out how to bring in a team to do it. And, and so I, I came to A&M and I stripped everything I could strip out of here to bring some power to bear. Brought a lot of good people on and then I had to, like I said, I had to trust those people. But that's that was an eye-opener because I learned how important it is to the, the idea of trust. If I was going to be anal about it and trying to be involved in every decision, I would have died. Yeah, couldn't possibly do it. it it's not possible. Yeah. And, and, and so bringing that group together uh, was the most important thing, trusting the people and then having a process by which you could get your hands around it. And you knew you had 10 fires going on and the, your, your – with all the fires that were that were burning, it would have been easy to get consumed by all by the multiple fires as opposed to doing anything. So we reached a, we just reached a conclusion. Let's knock these things out one at a time. Let's mm-hmm. get one and let's build on the momentum and then get the second one and the third one. And then one day you wake up and there's no fires, and uh, you realize that's 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 how it's, it has to be done. And you hope that you have the cash to be able to permit you to get to that point. There's a life lesson in that. You know, you sort of can't get overwhelmed by all the noise. Now, with the benefit of some hindsight, what lessons did you learn? If somebody calls you in that similar situation, something, something's gone horribly wrong big and says, Brian, what do I need to know? What advice would you pass on to them now? Large case like that, you've got to, you've got to plan your exit. You know, you've got to plan your exit. And you also have to appreciate the importance of liquidity. What happened in Lehman, which few people understand, is that the bankruptcy judge permitted us to accumulate cash when cash was critical in that marketplace. In the marketplace of 08 and 09, there was a tremendous shortage of cash. And by us liquidating and being able to retain the cash and the judge permitting us to reinvest the cash in positions that we had, we may have a 25% position, we could buy a, out, out the other 75% for pennies on the dollar. We made billions during that period. We made billions of dollars, which went to the benefit of ultimately the, the recovery of the creditors. And that, that liquidity, what I learned from it is, is that how important is liquidity that if there is another deep recession like the Great Recession of, of 2008, the, the importance and the value of liquidity and, and how it can cost you money, but you can just do wonders with a little bit of liquidity that you yeah. have. The, it's clear, you know, if you were in the lucky situation in those moments to have cash and have liquidity, it was an investing opportunity unlike anything we've ever seen before. It's obviously the time when it's the hardest to have it, which is the whole point. So you launched a business with a equal partner and you guys mm-hmm. have been partners for a very long time together. What lessons did you learn early on about managing a venture as partners? Well, one of the most important rules that we stumbled on, you know, was what happens when we disagree. And what we decided to do was we said, if you feel something, if you feel strongly about something, then you got to tell me that you feel strongly about it and I'll back away and vice versa. 
if I feel something, you'll back away. And in our in the course of our 30 some odd years, 35 years, there's only been three instances where that veto was exercised, where we, the other partner just felt we we're going the wrong direction. You know, in order for that mechanism to work, you both have to really trust each other. Yes. You know, it, it's exactly. You, got, you really got to value each other. What do you value in Tony as a partner? Well, Tony is, uh, I mean, I completely trust him. I completely trust him. And uh, one of the other parts, uh, one of the other decisions we made was everything would be 50-50. Now, he didn't have to do that because he was my superior at Norton Simon. But Tony was smart enough to know that he said, you know what, that's no way to give a partnership. I don't want to be 60 and you be 40. I want you to be 50-50 with me and we will cut this baby up at the end of the year and you get half and I get the other half. And we won't challenge how many hours we put in and uh, we won't challenge how we're, how we're spending the money except through this other vehicle. We're going to trust one another's decisions. And that was that was really how we went uh, you know, went about the business. We also stumbled on a, on a fairly straightforward strategy from, from our days in Norton Simon. We, we concluded that we wanted two things. We wanted, well, number one, whatever we were going to do, we had to have fun at doing it. We had to get up in the morning and what we were doing made, made a difference to us. And no matter what it was, it had to make a difference or we shouldn't do it. And the second thing was, it was very important. So what you did was very important. Second most important thing was who you did it with. And that was being able to trust people, being able to bring people into the teepee with you who became later became more, you know, a greater and greater partner base. Today, we've got 650 partners in the firm. Well, let me, let me move to the last segment of the mm-hmm. podcast. Something we like to call best ideas. In our line of work, when we think about a portfolio, we think about good, better, best ideas. It's got to be a good idea to make it into the book or we would never invest in it or lend to it. But you can get bigger in things you like more. And so what we like to do in this framework is talk about the best ideas for us outside of work. What's something in your life recently, whether it's a lifestyle tip, it could be a product, it can be a TV show or a book. What's impacted your life as a best idea recently? So Brian, you're our guest. We're going to ask you to go first. (laughs) What's your best idea? Well, it, it, I have a lot of good ideas. It's just what what is a recent idea, you know? And uh, I'm 68 years old. I get a lot of partners now who are in their 60s, a couple of them even in their early 70s, that are debating what exactly what exactly am I going to do? Am I supposed to be retiring? Is that what I'm supposed to do? And it's it's an odd situation because for most of us in our 60s, we have never had as much experience as what we have accumulated. So in terms of wisdom, advice, probably the highest point in our lives. At the same time, we've got our testosterone's under control. You know, it's not fight or flight. You pound your chest every day. Yeah, yeah, we don't need that. You look at others and you just sort of shake your head. But So you're, you're a very strong asset to any company, certainly to a consulting business like our own. And so people are asking me, well, what do I do? Shouldn't I follow this path? And what I, what I tell them is I want you to, I want you to listen to a song. And it was a it was a song that was written by uh, by Toby Keith. Toby Keith is a golfer, and he was playing with Clint Eastwood. And uh, Clint is in his mid mid to late eighties. And Clint, uh, he said, "You know, what are you up to these days?" And he said, "I'm I'm shooting a movie." And the movie was, I think, the movie Mule was mm-hmm. the Mule at the time. And he said, "Well, you know, you're going strong, and you're in your eighties. How do you how do you reconcile that?" And uh, he said, I, I, reckon, I, I reconcile it because I cannot let, do not let the old man in. 
So Toby Keith went on. He he wrote a song for for Clint Eastwood. And it's called "Don't Let the Old Man In," and I play that song all the time. That's fantastic. And anytime anybody asks me the question about retirement, I said, "Listen to this song." Yeah, exactly. And I say, "Don't let the old man in." And that's that's really what I believe for all those guys and gals who are wondering what am I what am I doing at you know sixty five when people are expecting me to answer sixty five seventy. And Clint's going strong at 80. And that's what Tony and I will be doing. Yeah, we're going to go strong until we're in. I love it. Don't let the old man in. Well, then let me offer you my best idea. And, and I like to think about this as uh, inspired a little by the person I'm sitting next to. And uh, and you and I have had some great times playing golf together. And so I'm going to give you a, a product recommendation for our listeners, which is I am at best a mediocre golfer, but I very much enjoy it. And I very much struggled with my drives. And one of my friends who quite generously got me the new Callaway Epic flash driver. And I have to tell you, Brian, it's my favorite drive I've ever hit. It's impossibly forgiving. I'm hitting the ball further than I ever have before, and I couldn't love the club anymore. So in honor of, of some great golf times with you and golf stories in general, my recommendation this week, the Callaway Epic Flash Driver. And I will say the HPS cast cannot be bought. This is not a paid endorsement. <laughs> I just happen to really like this driver. Well, Brian, thank you. We appreciate you. your time. We, you know, I know how busy you are. This means a lot for us to be able to get together. We've heard a lot of interesting things today. And I think that to hear the stories about what it's like to build a business, what it's like to build a business with a partner and evolve that business from essentially a single product or offering a full a range of suite of offerings for your clients is incredibly interesting and inspiring. So thank you. Appreciate the time. And thank you. uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks again to our guest, Brian Marcel. Check out the episode description if you want to learn more about his company and hear the full version of Don't Let the Old Man In. And thank you to our listeners. We appreciate you all tuning in. We'll be back with more episodes featuring engaging conversations with a wide range of business leaders. This podcast was brought to you by Atwill Media with HPS Investment Partners. Check out the show notes to find links to some of our best ideas and remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts online.